people who are offended by the doctrine of limited atonement usually say it's because it makes Christ's sacrifice insufficient in some way. But aren't they making the atonement limited in more serious ways? Welcome to The Conquering Truth. I'm Dan Horn. I'm Jonathan Sides. I'm Charles Churchill. And I'm Joshua Horn. A common argument against the doctrine of limited atonement, which is the idea that Christ died just to save a certain elect people, that that somehow that means that his his sacrifice was insufficient in some way, because if it would have been a better sacrifice, if it would have been more useful, then it would have atoned for more people. And I think that people turn around in more serious ways, ignore what the real effects of the atonement are and the real promises in Scripture of what the effects of the atonement are. But I've heard lots of people say this argument about that, that basically you're disparaging the sacrifice of Christ by saying that the number of people that were saved by him by his sacrifice is limited in some way. So so how should you answer that? So when you start talking about the doctrine of limited atonement, we almost always talk about it in one very specific sphere, in one very specific space. We're almost always talking about it as far as the atonement of the sin of individuals. We talk about it in the context of soteriology. I mean, that's when you talk about the doctrines of grace in the Reformed tradition, even that's that's where that doctrine comes into. And I mean, there's classic ways of answering that, and and we'll get into a little bit of that tonight. I mean, one of my favorite ones is to say, look, what what you're dealing with is the difference between saying that Christ's sacrifice actually did something, meaning he actually saved people when he died, or that he only potentially saved right. people who would then later on in time respond to the work that he did. Um, so that's one one way which to, really disparages his sacrifice, right? Because right. that's basically saying his sacrifice was not complete enough to actually rescue anybody. That he didn't actually save anybody until such point at which they accept him into their hearts, which that, is where they save themselves. <laughs> and that's kind of that's where we sort of end up having all of the battles about atonement. The problem with atonement is we don't recognize what the real problem is. The real problem is that. Where did the sin come from in the first place? And then what what are the effects that sin had when sin came into the world? And it's not the case that the only problem with sin when sin enters into the world through the sin of Adam and Eve is that it is just the fact that men now have a problem with approaching God. That's a That's a huge problem. It's a central problem to each one of us. But on top of that is the entire world got cursed by the effects of sin. And the question that you want to ask is when Jesus comes into the world and does things, spills his own blood, is that only about the salvation of men and women? Or is he actually trying to reverse the effects of sin? Not trying to. Is he actually reversing the effects of sin throughout the world in ways that are counteracting the way that sin was introduced into the world by the first Adam? And so when we talk about the doctrine of limited atonement, the idea of the doctrine of limited atonement is before the foundation of the world, God chose who would be saved. And that when he came into the world and he took on flesh, he died to – it was sufficient for the sins of the whole world, which we'll talk about later. But it also was in terms of people being saved. It was for a very elected, selected group of people. And one aspect of that is it doesn't – it doesn't mean that there was something wrong with his sacrifice or that they couldn't have applied his sacrifice to more. 
The reality is, though, that he, God the Father and God the Son, conspired together before the foundation of the world to say, this is what his wages would be. These are the people who he would save. And yes, he saves the whole world, but these are the people he will save. And then the rest will be damned because they were condemned already. And so when we think about it, we have to think about it as they entered into a contract, right? I mean, it's a covenant. Who's they? God the Father and God the Son entered into a covenant and said, these are the people that we're going to save. And so it's very arrogant of man to sit back and say, God the Son should have insisted to get more people from God the Father. And it's somehow that God the Son misnegotiated, because that's effectively what you're saying, is God the Son, his sacrifice was worth more than that. He could have gotten paid more. Well, who are you to get in the way of the wage agreement between God the Father and God the Son? There's a lot of verses that that bear on this. One of those would be John 10, verses 27 through 29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And there you have the sheep being a select group that Christ gives eternal life to, um, and they hear Christ's voice and follow him. It's not that Christ you know, purchased you know, any, potentially any number of sheep. It was a specific group of people that he purchased, and that are his people. And that they were given to him by his father. Right. And he's very clear. And they're, they're in his hand, and they're in his father's hand. And I mean, and so you even see, like you said, the covenant between them and the contract between them, that they're saving this people. And so when people go, and this is the argument I've heard many times, is what you're saying is there, if Christ's sacrifice somehow would have been better, he would have gotten more people. And the answer is no. It's not saying that, there was some some fault in the sacrifice that Christ made. There's no implication there. It's just that God the Father and God the Son said, this is what we're agreed to. This is what we're going to do. And he chose the elect from before the foundation of the world. Is, is part of it an implication that God would be more glorified if more people were saved than the elect? If, if, if there were a greater number of people saved, is that what is that part of the equation? No, it really. I think usually when that argument is being made, it's um, yeah. The the only counter argument you can make is, but man had to be involved because the limit could not be from God; it has to be from man. That if it was God limiting it, then somehow that steals from His glory. But if it's God, you know, Christ's sacrifice was enough so that anybody could be saved. So whosoever will, then the person who's limiting it is man, and somehow by the view is by shifting the limiting of the atonement from God to man that somehow that's bringing more glory to God. But God's very explicit that if that's true, then man can boast. So you're shifting the glory to man. But the argument is that that's the only way to, for God to be glorified is to shift that glory to man. I mean, I think the other thing that it's also denying kind of what Jonathan was asking in one sense is people forget that God is glorified by showing his wrath. I mean, and you see that in Romans 9. I mean, Paul actually says that very explicitly. What if God, desiring to show his wrath, you know, endured with long suffering? I mean, and so you see this part of it where, and people just, people actually don't think that God is glorified by showing his wrath. And so, I mean, in fact, you know, he's glorified by showing his wrath, and he's glorified by showing mercy. And he's very clear that he'll show mercy on who he'll show mercy to. And, And there's, like you said, there's this argument that somehow, that man has to be involved in his mercy, that man man is the one who gets to decide 
who God shows mercy to, in fact. And I mean, there's this parable where where Jesus Christ is talking about a landowner and people come at different times for different wages. And his answer is, you know, it's in Matthew 20, verses 11 through 14. When they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, this, these last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give this last man the same as you. We don't have the right to get involved in that negotiation. I mean, when when Jesus is saying this, he's rebuking them. And, you know, there's there's things here about, you know, you can apply this to the age that people are saved. You can apply this to the Jews versus the Gentiles, all these things. But in the bottom line is Jesus Christ and God the Father negotiated this and they agreed to it. And it is very arrogant for man to step in and say, those wages were wrong. That is putting yourself in the place of God. And that's usually what people are doing with limited, with rejecting the doctrine of limited atonement is they're putting themselves in the place of God, either saying it's only effectual when I apply it to myself or God negotiated this wrong. He should have had more people instead of going. God the Father and God the Son are both much wiser, infinitely wiser than we are. And who are we to get in the way? Who are we to act like we can judge their situation just like the Jews were ju- – or the, the picture here is the people who started earlier in the day were judging the people that came late in the day and say he shouldn't give that wage. No, he can give the wage that they agreed to. The guy early in the day said he agreed for a denarius. Why does he think he should get more because somebody later still got a denarius? And this kind of ties back to what I was saying a little bit right. ago is that God – gets to choose who he will show mercy to. And this isn't just some side thing either. I mean, we we talk about this in a number of episodes, that this is a central part of God's glory. This is a central part of who God is. And so there's, there's this passage in Exodus where when Moses goes up on the mountain and he tells God, I want to see your glory. In Exodus 33, 18 through 19, and he, Moses, said, please show me your glory. Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And there's this part of it where, I mean, God is telling him, I mean, I'm going to show you my glory, and and this is my glory. This is the name of the Lord will go before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will be compassion. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. This is not something, like you said, that man can get involved in. This is so central to how God glorifies himself that it's not strange at all that he reserves it to himself. It, it can't involve anyone else. Otherwise, man puts himself equal with God or above God, right? Right. That man can boast. And when you think about it, right, it's all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, what does he say his name is here? That should cause people to be kind of right. a little concerned. There's a reason why historically what are called Arminians now were anathematized because this is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible says, this is my name. I show mercy to whom I will show mercy. And this idea that the mercy is general and anybody can claim it that wants to claim it, that's not really calling on the name of the Lord. And and there's this feeling that somehow if God is as we are describing him, that somehow the, that he's evil, he, he could have saved more. But that's not what Exodus says. It's like, my goodness shall pass before you. Right. 
Where else are you going to find goodness? You know, you don't you don't have a standard of goodness that's better than God's. Right. And there there cannot be any standard of goodness outside of God that God has to submit to. Otherwise, he's not God. So, you know, who are you, Pot, to say, why did you make me thus? I mean, it's what we keep coming back to. So when we look at the Old Testament about the definition of the elect and where the elect is used, it's worthwhile considering the context of it in Isaiah 65, 8 and 9. Thus says the Lord, as the new one is found in the cluster, and one says, do not destroy it, for a blessing is in it. So will I do for my servant's sake, that I may not destroy them all. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah and heir of my mountains. My elect shall inherit it, and my servant shall dwell there. It's really important for us to remember the other choice. The other choice is he destroys it all. And so as soon as you start to say he should have shown mercy to some, you're automatically, like you were just saying, you reduce his wrath and the, the righteousness of his wrath and the goodness of his wrath even to destroy sin. That you destroy, you you minimize all those things as soon as you say that his sacrifice should have made it available to everyone. Because you're saying that everybody wasn't guilty. Everybody didn't stand condemned. It's his mercy that anybody is saved. And that's what we're supposed to recognize. That's his goodness, is that anybody was saved. Because if you start to say more people had to be saved, you're basically saying you're you're disparaging the significance of salvation. You're you're saying that there was some obligation on Christ to give himself up, not that it was something that he freely chose to do. Right. And so when we think about the sacrifice of Christ, no one could be saved without the sacrifice of Christ. Everybody was going to be destroyed. There was no one would have survived. And for so as soon as you start to say there should be more that are saved, you're acting like you're minimizing the zeal that we should have to be to be thankful towards God that anybody was saved and that we were saved in particular because we should consider it a miracle. We shouldn't just be going, oh, you know, he could have saved a whole bunch more. We should be going, it's a miracle that he would put up with me and save me. You can see where the loss of this doctrine has really affected our culture. You can see where it's changed the way we think about God's obligation toward us. I mean, even what we think of as goodness. Like there's a part of it where, I mean, we have this idea that others owe us things. We have this idea that someone who has something owes it to other people, that they have this. And and there's a part of it where God does tell people to be good in certain ways, that there are times where certain people should act in a certain way. But the obligation is to God, not to others. Yeah, And so there is this part of it where you can't come to someone and force them to give you what they have. You can't, but, but we have this idea today that you should. And so, I mean, when the church really fails to teach this doctrine, it causes, it causes people to not even understand what mercy is. It causes people to, to think that in the end, they don't deserve their wages. They don't deserve the, I mean, because you went back to God's wages between himself, but it ends up coming that when you, when you mess with that equation, on the other end, you end up messing with the equation that says that the wages of sin is death. And there are people who start to look at it and go, God shouldn't judge us. God shouldn't hold us accountable for what we've done. Because he could have sacrificed and saved us. Right. And so, so basically what you're saying is the loss of the limited atonement is why we have Obamacare. It's, it's, it's all, almost all forms Big of communism. There. is. I mean, all these forms of socialism that say other people who have owe me are right. directly tied to that. 
You can't say that somebody shouldn't get health care. Everybody should get health care. How can you limit it? It's wrong to limit it. But man always has to limit it. And that's what you see in all the socialist systems is that the limit is always less than the system that God set up, which is always more merciful. But yet we always think that our system would be more merciful, and it always ends up being less merciful. It's the same with limited atonement. It's because we're denying the, the law of sowing and reaping and, and the fact that God says, here's your wages. Your wages are death. Right. Except that there's a substitute for you. And it, you, you, you cannot earn that. You cannot out-earn your own earnings unless God comes in and says, hey, I have something better for you. So, I mean, as we've kind of laid out the framework for the doctrine of limited atonement and talked about why it's important, we're going to start talking about how what you need to realize as you understand it is that everyone limits atonement in certain ways. That it's not just that there's a part of it where people don't understand and how they limit atonement. And they can, when you look through the history of the world, every group that's come to see God's gift, when they think about it wrong, they limit the atonement in different ways. And they limit it in different ways than God has prescribed it to be limited. And so when people have an argument with limited atonement, they don't actually have an argument with the idea that the atonement is limited. It's either a misunderstanding of what the atonement accomplishes, it's a misunderstanding of the ways that it's limited, but they always limit it in different ways. And, and as we start dealing with that, I think that's really useful to see and understand how we actually deal with this doctrine, how we actually interact with it. So are you basically saying that God has said, this is the way that my atonement is limited, this is what it does, and we don't like those boundaries, so we try and redraw them elsewhere. And in, even in cases where we're saying, oh no, the, you know, the atonement's unlimited, that practically we still treat it as being limited. Right, and, and even, right, so and I think as we go through it, I mean, effectively, as we deal with any doctrine, you realize when you change one aspect, you affect everything. You can't tweak it over here without it having it. I mean, you can see this in any system where things are balanced. You make a change and it has huge effects to the rest of things. And so I think, so much of the New Testament is actually talking about limited atonement. Not the doctrine, but how the doctrine is perversed. Because a lot of the New Testament is about the Jews are saying the Gentiles can't come in, that you must be a Jew in order to be saved. I mean, you know, Acts 15, other places, and, you know, you go to Romans 2, Romans 3. I mean, it's all over the place that it's discussed. And it's really the Jews, their initial thought, Galatians 1, right, was— Basically, atonement's limited to the Jews, so the only way that you can be atoned for is to become a Jew. Like, you know, it says in Acts 5, 5, 15, 5, in Acts 15, 5, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who believe rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. When the Jerusalem council, when Paul and Barnabas come from Antioch and meet with the elders in Jerusalem, there's people standing up going, no, it's limited. It's only to the Jews. It's only to the Jews. And so we really have to be careful to fight where we limit it where it shouldn't be limited and we don't limit it where it should be limited. Elect is the obvious place where it's limited. When we look at the soteriology, I mean, it's the elect are those who God chose before the foundation of the world. You can't apply it to other people. But then there's other areas where we can be very tempted to do the same thing, where we can limit the atonement. And it started in the New Testament, and there's all this record of it, and it's important that we recognize that there's a record of it because those things weren't written just so that they would know it or we could go back and look at the history. We should look at it because we should recognize how easy it is for us to do the same thing. 
And the Jews are saying the only way to be at one with God is to keep the law of Moses all the way down to circumcision right. in all the details. That that's you the had to only become way. a Jew, right? The yeah. sign, you know, the the terminology that's used in like Romans two, I think it is, is there's the circumcised and the uncircumcised. Ephesians two, the circumcised and the uncircumcised. And so when the Pharisees are saying you have to be circumcised, they're saying you have to become a Jew. That's the only way to be saved. You have to follow ceremonial law and become a Jew. And you have to, I mean, like, it's a big enough deal that, like, right, God sends Peter's at the place. He sees the vision. The sheet comes down. He tells him to go to Cornelius. He sees that the Jew, and he goes, I get it. The Jews can receive this as, I mean, the Gentiles, they can receive this as well. And then later on, the Judaizers come in, and Peter is lured back in for a period of time going, you have to go back and be, I mean, certainly this is how big of a deal it was, is Peter, one of Christ's disciples who walked with Christ, was tempted after he had seen all these things, after he had understood them, to go back and go, no, you have to be circumcised. And and it's really important to recognize God was like crystal clear ahead of time. It wasn't like he's going, it's limited that way. In Isaiah 49, 5 through 7, it says, And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, and princes also shall worship because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you." So in Isaiah, it's crystal clear that the atonement was not limited to the Jews. I will set you as a light to the Gentiles. It's not enough for you just to receive the Jews. It's not enough for you. But yet, look at how many times they still ignore it, how many times they still fought over it, how many times Peter had to, Paul had to rebuke Peter over it. And yet, I mean, it's pretty explicit. It's not like it's subtle. It's pretty explicit. But yet people have trouble dealing with it you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth (laughs) really subtle right (laughs) yeah pretty explicit and so we should just recognize how how we can hear these things and hear these doctrines and in our own mind add things that are putting false limits on the atonement and that's what they did it's explicit in scripture it's explicit in scripture that the only people who will be saved are the elects he makes vessels for honor and vessels for dishonor he has limited who will be saved and we shouldn't turn around and change it, or we're being just like the people who were rebuked in the old or in the New Testament. So, so when you read those passage about the Judaizers, typically we talk about them in terms of works righteousness. That that's how you get saved is works righteousness. But in the context of what we're considering tonight, you want us to think about that as when somebody says the terms of salvation are different than what God says, they're really changing the terms of atonement. They're limiting the atonement to. Those who perform particular works. Right. And so in it and I think that's really important to recognize that just like you said before, that the people who say that the atonement isn't, you know, anybody has to be saved, they've chosen workspace righteousness too. They're saying that you have to have the work do the work of choosing God. So so unlimiting who was saved always ends up being a covenant of works because it always comes back to you need to do some work in order to be saved whether it's the work of belief or whether it's the work of being a Jew or what, whatever it is. It, so the doctrine of limited atonement, I don't think you can separate very far from the idea of being saved by works. 
Because, I mean, you look, I mean, like Charles Finney, who believed that type of, who, who believed in that. There's, you can see quotes from him where he says, salvation is a formula. Salvate, you know, it is a, it is a method that you, if you perfect and you deal with things correctly, you can cause someone to be saved. I mean, he, you know, I mean, once he said, you, I, if I'm alone in a room with anybody for 15 minutes, I will be a Christian by the end of it. Right, and so he he very much believed in like the scientific method of salvation. You could figure out all the variables, and you could cause this person to be saved because it was very much within your hands. And so we shouldn't think that that's not the result and the fruit of changing your view of how the how of how God is choosing those who should who should be His. I mean, and and if this verse that you have here. This is also where we're starting to introduce the idea that the scope of the atonement is greater than just the effects it has on individuals. Because where it starts to talk about kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship. This isn't just the effect of the atonement isn't just that a person will be saved. It's that when the king arises and believes in God, it affects the nation. Or doesn't believe in God. Right. 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 Either one. Right. You know, Psalm 2. Kings of earth kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish along the way. That's not salvation, right? That's that they'll that they will shall see and arise, right? Right. I mean, that's what the effect of the atonement was: is that the nations will see it, and the nations will be changed because of it, and the rulers will be changed because of it. But you look now, and how many churches limit the atonement, and they say, yes, it was for believers. Maybe they get sanctified. But it has no effect on the world. It doesn't affect the people around, which is the opposite of what the Bible says Christ's blood will do and his sacrifice will do. It will actually change. It will cause kings to rise up and see. They will see the effect of the church in the world. And this is, this is you're talking about something that, say, applies in, in reform circles, the, the whole R2K philosophy, this idea that there's this stark distinction between the kingdom of God and the, all the kingdoms of the world. And that, that there's, you know, no effect. Christians should not be interested in politics. The The effect of Jesus' work does not extend that far. Yeah, it doesn't agree with what God said in Isaiah. Isaiah 49 says it will have that effect. And we all, if you think about it, of course we should expect Jesus Christ coming and taking on flesh and dying for the sins of the world to have an effect in the world. How could it not have an effect in the world? But yet we think it won't have an effect in the world. That's limiting the effect of the atonement in a way that's completely unbiblical and completely contrary and, to Scripture. And these are people who would hold to the doctrines of grace. They would hold to right. the doctrine of limited atonement, just not extend it outside the walls right. of the Right, they church. don't actually think that the— they don't see the unlimited atonement in certain ways, how the atonement is supposed to affect everything. All they see it is it doesn't it saves only a, a limited number of people, so that means it can't have any effect beyond that. And that's not the teaching of scripture at all. So what do when we say atonement, what do we mean? Kind Reconciliation of, to God. Right. So and so And dealing with sin in the world. Which is necessary. <laughs> which is for, right. Which is, uh right. But um, so like when to so it's not that the the king like a pagan king who is you know what 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 does the verse say? So it's not like the the uh, the prince who is worshiping that every prince who is worshiping is converted and actually is has his his atoned for and is made right with God. No, it's it's saying that God is dealing with sin in the world and that He's atoned for the sin of the world not the sin of every individual in the world. 
there will be those right at the end of time. God will gather everybody in and all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness will be cast into the lake of fire. So that king, that pagan king will be cast into the lake of fire. But that doesn't mean that there wasn't real effect of his sin and on his sin in the world because Christ came to atone for the world. So the Jews had this idea that you had to be, the Judaizers had this idea that you had to become a Jew in order to be saved, right? We see that in the, in the New Testament. But what we see now is that somehow the Jews are specially atoned for, that they're this separate special people. Well, that's not, God says an atonement is about making things join together to make them one. And that's not what God says that his sacrifice did. He said he eliminated the Jews as a people. In Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is what the effect of the blood of Christ was. For he himself is our peace who has made both one. He's made atonement. He's joined them together, the Jews, the uncircumcised, and the circumcised. They've been made one by the blood of Christ. This is part of the atonement that Christ came to do. And broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is a law of commandments or contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are afar off and to those who are near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are, being built together for the dwelling place of God in the Spirit. The reason I thought it was worth reading all that is he goes, one body, one dwelling place. You know, he keeps emphasizing that he's taken it and taken the Jews and the Gentiles and eliminated that distinction. But how many churches today go, we need to support Israel because there's a distinction. Well, Jesus Christ said this is what his blood atoned for. He cre- that separation was created so that people would see a separation between the people of God and the, and the people of the world. Christ came to eliminate that. And yet how many churches like really want to put an emphasis on that? There's a reason why we always fund wars in Israel and all this other stuff with Israel is because we keep saying his atonement didn't do that. That atonement, it did do that. And so we keep eliminating, limiting the t- atonement in a really serious way because Christ is saying all this stuff that was done, it was done so I could eliminate this stuff. And we go, no, 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 we're still separate. And I would say this goes without saying, but almost nothing does these days. <laughs> That it doesn't mean that you have to have a negative attitude towards Israel. It doesn't mean that you that you treat them in a bad way, that you look at them and say anything negative about them because because of anything like that. But it but almost there's this it's so ingrained that the elimination of the special treatment is seen as negative. Right. And that's how strong it's become in the church. I mean, that's how there are so many churches. I mean, even somebody like John MacArthur. I mean, John MacArthur 
you know, really solid in a lot of things about, you know, he's really moved, you know, and you can see him, his embracing of, of, of soteriology that's solid, his handling of scripture in a lot of areas, very, very solid. But when it comes to Israel, he's got this distinction that he makes, and it's gotten smaller in some ways over time, but he's still keeping it as this absolute distinction. And it's really hard to justify when you read Ephesians 2. It's really hard to explain how that works out in the world. It's really hard to explain it when you say the blood of Jesus Christ is powerful. And then he says, well, this is what the blood does. And you go, no, it doesn't. I mean, that's a, that's a big problem. And so the church has to be really careful to actually give glory to God where he deserves glory. He's eliminated this thing, and that's glorious. And there's still people that are called the Jews so that they could be a proverb and a watchword throughout the earth so that we can see how, how this is what happens to a people who falsely profess that they have God as their God. But in terms of the church, there's nothing special about the Jews anymore. They've been eliminated. They're just another group of unbelievers. And that kind of, I mean, what you're saying there is that when we don't think about what the effect of the atonement is, when we don't think about the fact that it is a powerful to accomplish things. I mean, one of the, a word that gets used a lot in the discussion with the atonement is like the efficacy. Right. You know, that it's, it's sufficient, you know, sufficient for all, but only efficacious for some. But we forget what that word means and that the efficaciousness of it is broader than individual salvation. That it, like you said, it collectively saves. It took the two groups and it made them one, that it reconciled them, that it brought them together. And when you don't think of it that way, you end up limiting the effect of the atonement in different ways. Like you end up effectively, you treat it like the blood of bulls and goats, which is which is really, you know, I mean, what Christ said, the reason why the sacrifices were done for so long was that the blood of bulls and goats can't accomplish what his sacrifice did. And I think that you see in churches all the time that they don't actually believe. They believe that the atonement, what it means to have been made one with Christ, they have redefined it to mean something completely different than what it meant because they let people sit in the church that have committed a – I mean, I know of a church where somebody committed adultery. That's not a reason to put them out of a church. Well, yes, it is, but they've limited the atonement to say, well, he believes in Jesus Christ is why he's still in the church. He's qualified to be a deacon still, right. even though he's committing you know, fornication. He's qualified to be a deacon because, after all, the atonement doesn't do much. And so, like you said, it makes it like the blood of bulls and goats. That's what it talks about in Hebrews 10. And every priest standing ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he has offered one sacrifices for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. In other words, the sacrifice of bulls and goats couldn't take away sin, but Jesus Christ takes away sin, starting with those who are the elect, starting with when they make a profession of faith, when he opens their eyes, when he calls them, and it actually takes away sin. So if you look and you say, well, yeah, we're, we don't want to do any discipline on that person because if they, we do discipline on that person, maybe they'll flee the church. Recognize you've limited the atonement in a way that Christ says it is not to be limited. So that's worth camping on for a little while because the, when you see the Bible very plainly say that Jesus takes away sins, what we do is we do a little bit of interpretation on that and say what actually happens is Jesus takes away the penalty of sin. And that's what atonement is. And so that now there's no cost to me 
for the sins. But that's not what the text says. It's not what the text the says. The text says over and over, your New Testament, Jesus comes to take away the sins of the world. He is taking sins out of the world like the first Adam brought sins into the world. And that is huge. That means that you should expect saved people to sin less because right. Jesus is taking away their sins as they are being sanctified. That's what happens when somebody gets saved. But it's more than just that. I mean, this is... It's more than just happening in the saved people. He's taking sin out of the world. Not just in the New Testament. It's also in the Old Testament. This is what Christ came to do, but yet we minimize that. But we want to say anybody can be saved, but we minimize what it means to be saved. Well, no, the atonement actually makes a new people, like it says in Ezekiel 36, 24 through 27. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And people quit there instead of reading the rest. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. That's what the atonement was for. He had Israel for... For 1,400 years that he keeps saying, do this, do this. He sends punishment. He sends judgment. He f- sends you know, the Assyrians, and he can- sends, you know, splits the kingdoms. He sends in the Babylonians. He sends in all these people because they wouldn't keep his commandment. And then we pretend like the new covenant's the same. No, Jesus Christ's blood works to take away sins, unlike the blood of bulls and goats that never worked. But yet we turn around and say it's the same. But the promise is that when he died, when he sacrificed, and when he ascends to the Father and sends his Spirit, his Spirit will cause us to walk in his statutes. The, all of that Old Testament stuff is all external to show what needs to happen. To come near to God, you need blood, you need washing, you need you need circumcision, but they're all just external things that are they're play-acting for 1,400 years in order to show this is what needs to happen inside you. Right, and I think, I mean, play-acting... It's also that they're doing this to prove that man's work will never do it, <laughs> that it has to be the work of God. It has to be from the inside, and man can't change his inside. And it has to be from the inside. So I understand what you mean by the play acting, and at the same time, it's really showing the absolute futility of it. And yet we then turn around and say that there's futility in the sacrifice of Christ, that it can't take away sins any more than the blood of bulls and goats. Well, no, it does. It actually does, but the church wants to deny it all the time. And it's a reject. So, I mean, basically, what you're saying is, is if God spent 1,400 years showing the futility of man's efforts, for man then to turn around and take credit for the work of God is is reject. I mean, it's it's re- it's not and just to say that the work of God doesn't do anything that people can say the right. same. It's not just misinterpreting passages of Scripture. It's rejecting. The, it's rejecting the clear picture that God showed. It's rejecting what the picture was, and it's it's you know I mean it's I think it's so easy to go well I mean when we quibble over does man accept God's work and cause this or does God do it in Himself and we make it like it's this it's not that big of a deal. <laughs> we make it like that there weren't a whole bunch of books of the Bible written to explain this very thing. Right. There were all the prophets talk about it. All the history books in the Old Testament. They all prove it over and over again. You know, Isaiah talks about that God planted a vineyard and that it was a a good vineyard and it had everything in there that was needed and yet it produced garbage. Why did it produce garbage? Well, man was there and the Spirit of God didn't move there. 
And then he talks about in the new covenant that he will move his spirit there. And guess what? All of a sudden it produces the fruits of righteousness. And there's the promise of the producing of the fruits of righteousness. But we act like the new covenant and the old covenant are the same, that they're equally futile. That's a real limit to what Christ came to do. Christ came to produce a holy people. And he's very clear. I mean, when he, in Hebrews, when he's talking about if there, you know, if there had been not, not been a problem with the old covenant, and what he's clear is, is the problem with the old covenant was was man, right? <laughs> you know, like, the futility of changing man by anything other means right. other than God reaching in and changing him. Not only does his atonement cause us to keep his commandments, but as he's showing mercy on a people, part of it is God doesn't want to be ashamed by the people that he calls by his name. He so. Keeping his commandments is part of this, but it's even just really specific. Ezekiel eleven nineteen through 20. Then I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within them, and take the stony heart out of their flesh, and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes, and keep my judgments, and do them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. There's a part of it where the, the point of all this is that he can call them his people. That he can call them his people. I mean, with the Israelites, he called them his people. But, I mean, you see him talking to Moses. If I go with you, I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to, I'm going to kill you all in the wilderness because of your sin. You know what I mean? He's like, do you understand if I, you know, I'm, I can go with you, but do you know what it means? Because you can't be holy in any way. And you look at like Jeremiah 3 where he says he divorced Israel and he's going to divorce Judah. He said, they can't be my people. They can't be called by my name. But then we think now that you have Christ, that all of a sudden he finds that acceptable, where he found unacceptable before because he sacrificed his son. I mean, it's it's like really perverting God the Father. It's like really twisting it so that all of a sudden, because Jesus Christ died, it has less lower requirements to be his people than it did when they were sacrificing bulls. The sacrifice of Christ was less effectual than the sacrifice of bulls. If you go, he used to not be willing to accept an unrighteous and unholy people as his people, but now he accepts them. Well, you made the sacrifice of Christ of less efficacy than the sacrifice of bulls and goats. And God, God's saying that's not how it works. That's not how it works at all. It's kind of like when you talk, you know, people will go, you know, the God of the Old Testament was mean and the God of the New Testament is nice. And, you, and we argue when you go, no, it's the same God in the Old Testament, the New Testament. And to have that, what has to change is the work in the people. Right. You know they I mean? have to put a new spirit within. They will take their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh and cause them to walk in my statutes. Because that's what's required to solve the problem. And that's what the atonement does. It actually causes you to walk in his laws and walk in his ways. It doesn't mean we do it perfectly. First John's very clear. But it means it really happens. We're really sanctified. We're really changed. And to pretend like people can be saved and unchanged is to limit the effect of the atonement, to limit what Christ came to do. I mean, part of what you've been saying as you look at these verses, and it kind of ties back to what you said about Ephesians before, is... Christ was coming to make a people. And the church has kind of lost the idea of that. Because if you lose the idea that he's brought the Jews and the Gentiles together, you can't really fully understand that he's making he's making one new man. And that one new man is a people. Just like Israel comes out of Egypt and they're baptizing this, you know, this one person that's baptized in the sea, this this new body that he's creating is also a people and it is a nation. And so and are a nation among other nations. 
And then we forget that this will have an effect in the world, that this gathering of people that he has made that, are, that, are new, that have his spirit in him, that want to walk in his commandments, that, as if that will do nothing in the world. And, and they're a holy people, right? It used to be in the Old Testament that they were a holy people because he delivered them from Egypt, right? Now we're a holy people because he's written his law in our hearts and our minds. He's, he's, delivered, us us to, <laughs> he's delivered us from sin. He's caused us to walk in a different way. And like you said, we then turn around and pretend like that he isn't dealing with the sin of the whole world by doing that because he is, because he came not just to deal with the sin of people, but to deal with to undo the works of the first Adam. And all the nations and the wickedness in the nations is because of the work of the first Adam, right? The Tower of Babel. They get off the off of Noah's Ark and they immediately multiply and they start to to rise up, raise up against God. They get dispersed. They fight with each other. I mean, this is all the effects of the sin of Adam. And so all those nations that are in rebellion to God, they're that effects of that. And so what would you expect the effect of the church to be, of the holy people? It would be for them to roll that back. Or, you know, while you're talking about holy people, talk about a holy priesthood. You know, you had a nation where one-twelfth, give or take of them, were priests. Even smaller than that. One one family of one-twelfth of them were priests. Now, everybody, if you are a Christian, you are a priest. And and maybe it's just been pretty words for you, but, you you know, it means something. It means that you have work that God has given you to do, and that changes things. It changes the world in very public ways. What we're effectively saying is when you look at, we're going through the sacrifices in Leviticus and going through the different works of the priest, and you see how a lot of those sacrifices weren't specifically about, like, salvation. They were about dealing with other effects of sin. They were about dealing with other things in the world. And so there's this part of it where when you look at this, there's a part of it where those who are saved, those who have been saved, they are the... They are the result. Their work is the result of Christ's atonement. That Christ's atonement sends the Holy Spirit, changes a people, brings them together, and then gives them work to do in the world, which causes the ending and reduction of sin, the, the, the reduction of sin over time. And, that's, and, and we just when we don't have that idea, we don't even understand what the church is doing in the world. And we think of it as just being about going out and getting other people to be saved, which is great, but it's just part of the work. And But we think it's just going out and getting other people saved, but then saved to what end? Right. If the end isn't to be sanctified, to be holy, you're denying the atonement. You're denying what you're making. You're limiting the atonement in a way that God doesn't limit it. And if you then say that that group of people that God has now saved, if their holiness doesn't affect the nations around them, Again, this is why he's rejecting Israel. In Ezekiel 36, 22 through 23, it says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake. This is why he says he's going to send the Holy Spirit that will cause people to walk in his commandments. I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nation shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I'm hallowed in you before their eyes. And so what we're supposed to do, what the church is supposed to do, is cause the nations to see who God is. And yet, I mean, that's the effect of the atonement, is that the nations actually come to know who God is. 
That's what Christ did by going to the cross. We, again, try to limit it that it's just about the elect. No, it's the nation saying the glory of God. And one of our, our favorite passages to talk about when you talk about— <laughs> I throw this in all the time. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's kind of a classic for the podcast, but when you talk about the effect of the work of Christ on the nations, you have to go to Daniel 2. This is Daniel's vision, or this is uh, Nebuchadnezzar's vision and Daniel's interpretation of it. But Daniel 2, starting in verse 44. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed— And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. The stone's the (laughs) kingdom of God, which is the the work of Christ. It's, It's what's happening now that Christ has come into the world. And it's overwhelming the nations of the world. It's, and, and it's overwhelming these political nations. It's, it's very clear that this is, not, this is not talking about purely spiritual things in, it, right. in, a, in a realm of angels and demons. This is talking about actual physical kingdoms in the world that are being overwhelmed by the kingdom of God. I mean, it's like incredibly specific, right? The Roman Empire will become like chaff, against the kingdom of God, right? I mean, it's not like arbitrary. And in, in Daniel, it's a very explicit. You can't miss it. He's talking about a physical kingdom. And, you know, the Roman Empire and the effects of the Babylonian Empire, the Medes and Persians, the Greek Empire, all these empires that continue to have effects, all of them will become like chaff on the summer threshing floor by the kingdom of God that Christ came and established through his blood being sacrificed. And when we go, well, we're not supposed to be destroying the humanist nations. No, actually, we are. That's that's the promise of what the atonement will do. It's a promise of what the atonement will do. And so we really limit what Christ's sacrifice meant when we go. This isn't going to come to pass, or this isn't, you know, things will get worse and worse. Sorry, that is not what's taught. That's not what's taught, the f- efficacy of the— crucifixion of Christ. Otherwise, you start to make it that it is, it is his return that does it and not the shedding of his blood. It's the shedding of his blood that provides atonement, not his return. I always think that the stone was Christ. And when you look at the atonement, it makes sense. And it's clear from the passage that it's the kingdom. It's the result of his work causing the atonement. He sits down at the right hand of the Father and the stone that comes and does this work is the is his atonement going forth and it being accomplished. And so in the sense, his kingdom coming is a result of what he does. He does this sacrifice, and it is achieving the effects of the atonement that he made. And what we miss is that Christians are the first fruits of salvation— He's the first fruit that means he'll bring many sons to glory, but also Christians are the first fruit. Well, what's the final fruit? Righteousness throughout the whole world is the final fruit. We're the first fruit. And so we're bringing righteousness through all the nations, which is what Daniel 2 is promising. So Christ, by his atonement, he collects the first fruit so that he can get the fruit of the whole world. And when you look at the history of the world, this has been happening. And, and we're not going to go into depth in this. There are other episodes where we talk about this, and there will be other episodes in the future where we talk about specific aspects of it. But it's really important when you don't 
understand what he was doing, when you don't look at the world in the right way, you can trick yourself into believing that the things you see that are the result of his atonement, that are something else. You can, I mean, you can become effectively sort of like almost a Christian evolutionist. The mm-hmm. evolutionist looks at the glory that God has put into the world in his order and the way he has made the world, and they deny that he has done it. And there are Christians who can look at the work of the atonement in the world and deny that Christ has done it. And that is that should terrify us. And the tearing down of nations, right? We can look and say, but there's all these terrible nations. Really? Go back a little bit. Go back a little bit and look at what kings thought they had the power. They, they believe they had the power of life and death over everybody. Well, that's being beaten down. It's being turned into chaff of the summer threshing floor. And this is happening, but like you said, we just go, well, this is just man's getting smarter about how to rule himself. He's constrained more. No, no, no. This is the effect of the atonement, but we limit that effect of the atonement so that we we act like this is the nature of man. No, the nature of man is to do greater and greater evil. Wicked men wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. If it wasn't for the atonement, the nature of man is to continually get more evil. But yet, instead of that, Christ came, and the nations are getting better God's name is being glorified among the nations. These promises are being fulfilled. But if you don't understand what the atonement was made for, what Christ's blood was to do, you don't look at it and say, that's that's the atonement. You look at it and say, oh, that's just kind of odd that man's getting better like that. I mean, you think about think about a dictator in North Korea and imagine, you know, the level of power that he has. Imagine if the whole world were filled with people who had that kind of power. Only a lot more. Only, Yeah. <laughs> But but if if our world were filled with a whole bunch of people with that kind of power, if every nation had that, because that's effectively what the world was like up until the time of Christ, where all any anybody who was a ruler, anybody who was a king somewhere, had that sort of ability to compel the entire population to do whatever he pleased. And the world's just not like that, such that we can look at somebody and say that he's a cartoonish figure of a ruler, unsophisticated, backward. We think all these things because Jesus changed the world. Right. So one of the verses I think that people would use to argue against the, you know, Calvinist soteriology, the doctrine of limited atonement, uh, would be John 3. And, you know, there's, you know, both the Calvinists and the Arminians have the the set of verses that they go to. Um, uh, But I think if we have... and I, th- you know, I think John three would be one of these, you know, Arminian verses. But if you have this concept that we're kind of been presenting here about the effects of that salvation re- stretching to the whole world, it it helps explain it. So John three sixteen through eighteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son. And so the what, what, what we're saying here, let me back up. You might want to read the last two words, too. You said only begotten oh, son. Really? The only begotten oh. son of God. <laughs> because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And so the Arminians would point to he's loving the world and he is you know, saving everyone who believe on him. But he's just kind of out there waiting and hoping that the people believe on him. Uh, but if we look at this where um, 
we, we're, we're saying that God has a plan for who he's going to save. And yet there is a sense in which he is still loving the entire world and saving the entire world. Um, not that every individual is saved because he knew from the beginning that the who will not believe and ordained that and and ordains for them to be condemned. But there is still that his salvation reaches to the entire world, that he has uh, a plan to restore humanity to himself. Right, not just people read this and they say, for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him should not perish. And then they take that and they say that means for God so loved man, kind, so that whoever believes in him should not perish. But that's not what the language is. The language is he loved the world, and then it turns around. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. The world was condemned in Adam, right? That's why in Romans 8 it says that the whole world is groaning together for the revelation of the sons of, of man. The whole world was condemned because of the— Isn't it sons of God? Excuse me. <laughs> Thank you. That the whole world is groaning, waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. And so what— the whole world is affected by the atonement. But yet when they take this verse, they twist it and they make it so that the world isn't the world, it's man. And so that means all men must be able to be saved or that only men are condemned. But the whole world has been condemned under the curse through Adam. And so because of that, Christ's atonement has to be far broader than just, just mankind or he's less than the first Adam. It's really important to recognize that you look at what happened to the first Adam. People's lifespans were a thousand years or whatever. Well, they were infinite until he he sinned. But once he sinned, they were still a thousand years. And then you see them decline over time. You see finally it peaks in the flood and the destruction of the flood because God looks through the earth and says they're all filled with violence and wickedness. And that's the effect of sin going out. And it affects everything in the world. Trees start to die. Animals start to die. There's death everywhere. That's the condemnation that happened to the world because of the sin of Adam. And let's not pretend and treat the sacrifice of Christ to be of less significance than the sacrifice of Adam. If you just make it about man, you've made Christ a minor figure compared to Adam. What do you mean the sacrifice of Adam? Excuse me, the the sin of Adam. Thank okay. you. It's been a long day. If you make the sin of Adam, if you make the sin of Adam just about the effect on mankind. What, sorry, what was I saying? Let me fix all this, Joshua. You can just do it in post. Um, you just end the episode now. <laughs> let me let me try a third us. time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the outro should be great. Um, let me try a third time. So when Adam sinned, it affected everything in the world. The whole world looks completely different than it did at the time of Adam's sin. I mean, you don't have the water coming up from the ground. You don't have all these things. You don't have a fruitful garden. You have deserts. You have all these, all this testimony of judgment on the world. Including especially death and decay. Death and decay, but not just man's death and decay, but death and decay everywhere. That's the condemnation that came on the world through the sin of Adam. The righteousness of Christ as the second Adam was greater than the first Adam. We should not expect that the world to just end up where Adam left it. We don't just go back to the Garden of Eden. The, the, the work of Christ's atonement is such that heaven and earth become one, that they become joined together, which was not what it was like at the time of Adam. There was already a separation between the heavens and the earth. Christ's sacrifice was greater. The effect of it 
was greater than the effect of Adam's sin. Adam is not greater than Christ. Christ is greater than Adam. And if we just make it about men, we're making Christ smaller than Adam. I mean, there's a part of it where you could even, I mean, I mean, I'm going to say this, and you can tell me if I'm wrong or not. There's a part of it where you could say that, I don't know that I can say even, anything tonight. <laughs> even in the creation, heaven was God's throne and the earth was his footstool. That the glory that earth had wasn't, wasn't comparable to heaven. It, and so there's this part of it where, I mean, when you're saying that earth and heaven will become one, I mean, it's, it's, it's so far eclipses its beginning state. Right. I mean, and it's it's and and that's when you when we don't think about it that way, like you said, we we do great harm to the power and the efficacy of Christ's righteousness. Right. I mean, God would walk with Adam in the heat of the day. Right. He'd walk with them. That's not the promise of the new heavens and the new earth. The promise of the new heaven, the promise of the new heavens and the new earth. There will be no sun. There will be no stars. God will be the light because He will be present with you. We will judge angels, and it will be twenty-four hours a day. There won't be any night, right? And so that's just like so far beyond what the what where Adam was. Man, I'm having trouble tonight. It's so far beyond the garden. And yet we make it that it doesn't nearly extend the work of Christ, doesn't nearly undo what Adam did. No, it does more than undoing what Adam did. And so we really limit the effects of the atonement, the effects of what Christ did. Christ did it so that everything in heaven and earth would be, would be unified. He created – that's the level of his atonement. I mean, there's a part of it where this – when you understand this – it takes you back to a deeper understanding of when he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will show compassion to whom I will have compassion. Because there's just, like you said, earth and heaven becoming one, Those these creatures made of dirt judging angels. It, I mean, there's a part of it where, I mean, in, in some ways, Satan's offense with, with what God was doing may have been the way God was showing kindness to these, you know, these, these bugs on the earth these worms. And so there's this part of it where, I mean, we just, we, we really don't understand the degree and the depth of God's mercy. And if you don't think about it in this way, if you don't understand what he's doing with the atonement, you, you don't even realize what he's bestowed upon us. And you, you've made this, there's an efficacy because people can be saved. No, there's a far greater efficacy of the sacrifice of Christ than that. Far greater. I mean, it says in first John three, it says in 1 John 3, 7 and 8, Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil sinned from the beginning. For the purpose, the, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. He came to destroy all the effects of sin, all of it, even back through Satan. It's not even Satan in the garden, right? His effect is greater than that. It carries back through and he fixes the problem with Satan. And yet we go, he doesn't fix any problems with sin. No, he came to destroy the works of the devil. And the works of the devil is sin from the beginning. And and, I mean, this is the, if you want to step back and say, what is the big program that God has? He's at war with sin. Right. He is at war with sin. And Jesus Christ coming into the world was the beginning of the end. You know, this it's basically is, him winning the war. Is, now there's just mop up. <laughs> now it's just mop up. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is waiting for all of his enemies to be made his footstool, and the last enemy is death. He will destroy the devil 
then he will destroy death, and then all those things we were talking about with heaven, they they happen forever. And so, I mean, just to, to reiterate this, to make sure people get it, because I don't think people people understand this, First John 2, 2. For he himself is the propitiation for our sins, right? Everybody goes, yeah, he died so that we our sins would be paved for. But then it says, and not for ours only, but for the whole world. But also for the whole world. But, <laughs> but also for like the that. whole world. <laughs> Did I not say all? You didn't say also. <laughs> There's no, no all. <laughs> He himself is a propitiation for our sins, and not just for our sins. Sorry. No, I was paraphrasing. I wasn't reading there, but then I realized. We knew you were paraphrasing. (laughs) Yeah, the church accepts what it says at the beginning of this, and he himself is a propitiation for our sins. Everybody goes, of course, Jesus Christ died so that our sins could be taken care of. But they ignore the rest, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. You're really limiting the atonement if you say Christ did not die to eliminate sin from the world. That's what he came for. That's what it says in 1 John 3. That was his purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. And we go, let's limit the atonement and make it about saving a group of people. Instead of, no, he came to fix the whole problem in the universe. And the part, I mean, like, like Jonathan said at the very beginning, in most of the discussions when people say, who did Christ die for? They mean that in a very specific way. Who did Christ die for to give eternal life to? But if you want to ask who did Christ died for, die for, there are people who will never see eternal life who gain the benefit, some of the benefits of Christ's death on this earth because sin is being dealt with in a different way than it was being dealt with before he died. And so Christ's death affects everything. And it's not, it does not change the fundamental argument. If you're arguing... Who did Christ die for to save and give eternal life to? That that we're, we're not touching that. That's not changing. That's set in stone. It is the elect. But you have to broaden it. You have to think of it in the bigger sense. You have to see the totality of it, or you're you're not seeing Christ. And we just, I mean, you just go back and you look at his, just look at history, right? In in North America. It was normal that you just killed people, right? The tribes would go and kill other tribes to get food. That was just normal. Why, why plant? You can just, if you're a good warrior tribe, you can just steal food from other tribes. You don't need to plant. It was until even into the 20th century at the wars, like World War One and World War Two, it was not uncommon to believe that if you took over a city, of course you got to rape every woman in that city. What do you mean? That's just the spoils of war. And you're even seeing that change now. I mean, it's just... We look at that and we go, no, that's not the spoils of war. Yeah, that is the spoils of war in World War One. That was thought not by the U.S. but by other nations. But why did other nations start to change more and more? Well, because of the U.S. and our Christian testimony as a nation. And so we just look, and I mean, there's like so many examples of sin being taken care of, sin being taken away from the world by the work of Christ, and yet we go, no, he didn't do anything. All he did was come to save, right? We're, you know, He came to save the elect, and he didn't affect anything else. And we just deny everything that's happening around us. And it's really denying what Christ came to do. And it's very egotistical because it makes what Christ came to do all about man instead of about God. 
God came to destroy the works of the devil. And praise God that in his kindness, he takes away our sins. But it's because of the greater thing that he came to do, which was to destroy the works of the devil. You kind of talked about that this goes, you've talked about the new heavens and the new earth. But scripture talks about it very specifically and how things are going to end and how Christ is going to accomplish his atonement in the world. And he talks about some of this in 2 Peter 3, 11 through 13. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And this verse gets abused constantly. But if you, if you don't think about this right, you're going you're gonna to look at this in a very different way. But this is Christ accomplishing the, his atonement by causing, by reconciling the world to God. And I think when you look at that, right, that elements, that comes from the word to march, which means to have a regular order. He's destroying the order of what creation's like now. Well, what's the order of what creation's like ever since Adam? Death, decay, destruction. Sensual wisdom, right? Wis- you know, the right. wisdom it's, from below. It's this picture. And so we read this, but we know from Romans 8 that the whole creation, the whole creation is groaning together, waiting for the revelation of the sons of God because it will be made into the new heavens and the new earth. This isn't talking about wiping it out. The picture is Adam comes and he sins, and that sin keeps filling the world until it fills the whole world, and then the world gets judged with water. That's Noah's flood. Christ comes, brings life into the world. That life in the world keeps expanding, 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 until it has filled the whole world, everything's, you know, the whole all the enemies shall be have been with the glory of God. No, well, that's a good one too. But I was thinking, you know, <laughs> I was thinking of the one where all the enemies of Christ will be defeated, and he'll come to defeat the last one, which is death. And then what happens? Then he judges the world with fire, where it's remade. And so he's doing the same remaking. It's the same pattern between the first and the second Adam. The one is a pattern of destruction that ends in further destruction. The other one is one that ends in further life. The idea is that the whole earth will not be consumed by fire. It will, all the works in it will be burned up. All the, all the order of it will be changed and transformed. So it's the new heavens and the new earth. But it's not like that earth doesn't continue to exist. That's not the teaching of Scripture. The earth continues to exist. Heaven and earth become one. So as we've walked through this, it almost seems a little bit ironic the way that we're talking about limited atonement in that really we're saying the atonement's much bigger than you thought. That, that if you, regardless of what side of the debate that you're on, if all that you do when you think about the atonement is you hang out in that little sandbox either side of it, then your atonement's not big enough. If you think that the atonement is only about the salvation of man, regardless of where you fall on the Calvinistic understanding of it, then you're not thinking about the atonement rightly. Your atonement is not big enough. The atonement accomplishes so much more than you thought. Ephesians 1, verses 7 to 12. 
In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. So we've been talking about the atonement. It's bigger than us. It's bigger than than man. And this verse is saying all things are going to be made together in Christ, in heaven and on earth. They're all going to be united in him. All things in, in heaven and earth, you can think it, it's going to be united together in Christ. This is, I mean, that's what atonement is. This is, it's being brought near to God. And this is Christ saying, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it all. All those things that sin separated, in all the ways that sin separated man and the world from God, Christ is reversing those and his reversal makes them better. We're not trying to go back to Eden. We're trying to go to heaven. And it will be better than the good world that God had in Eden for Adam. We're still arguing for a limit of atonement. It's limited, but it's not small. It's, and it's, and it's not limited in its effect on the world. It's right. limited on in its, it's limited in its effect on men. And yeah, when God makes a new heaven and the new earth, there is another place, right? There is hell. There is the lake of fire that everything that offends and all who practice lawlessness will be cast into it. We are limiting what Christ did. I mean, the church, the modern church tends to limit what Christ did and the effect of what Christ did in making the new heavens and the new earth. And then we want to limit the number of people that are cast into hell. We've got it all mixed up. He's creating a separation that's different than the separation that was before. It's a clean and complete separation between those who are righteous and pure, those who have had all their corruption removed. They put on incorruption, they're walking in righteousness and truth, and those who are in outer, utter darkness and being tortured and being separated from God and have no contact with God. Jesus Christ came to create that division. And it's a huge division, and we think that it's a huge gulf, but what he's really doing is he's moving us to the heaven side of the gulf. There's another error that we could talk about here, that you could have too high of a view of that atonement. You could say, and, and what you could do is you could, you could follow us along a lot of these steps we've taken, and then you could fall into universalism. And you can say, because of the effect of Christ, eventually everybody will be saved, and different mechanics for that. But you could do that. But we've already covered all of those passages that, that would counteract that tonight. Right. We're talking about, you know, going back to Exodus when God is, is speaking with Moses. My glory is going to pass before you. What is that glory? I'll have mercy in whom I will have mercy. So you, can't, you cannot fall into universalism. That's not there. But there are people who do that. And, and sure. you know, so we've been mostly talking about the ways that the evangelical church will do this. Well, the mainline church is falling the other way. God's going to save everybody because right. that's what the, the love wins, I think was a recent right. book. Well, probably not recent anymore. <laughs> right. So, you know, so we haven't Terrible been talking, book, we haven't that been talking not a about that one. Um, but we also deny that. We also deny universalism. Yeah. So when we think about universalism, right, 
that's rejecting the purpose for which he came. The purpose for which he came was to be glorified. The purpose for which he came was to cause the knowledge of the Lord to fill the the glory the knowledge of the glory of the Lord to fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. And his glory is to separate and not to be universal, not to say everybody's saved. That's not his glory. His glory is to make vessels of wrath and vessels of honor. And so when we think about universalism, universalism, again, replaces the purpose for which Christ came with something else. It's about man. Everybody has to be saved versus the reason Christ came was to glorify the Father. And he glorifies the Father by demonstrating his greatest glory. I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. It is very easy for us to to look at the atonement and try to limit it in ways that, that God tells us not to limit it. And he even gives us warnings in Hebrews 10 not to trample the blood of Jesus Christ underfoot. When you think about all those people with all those bull, the blood of bulls and goats and them sacrificing it, they would walk on that blood all the time. There'd be blood all around the altar burnt offering. They'd be traipsing through it, and it meant nothing. But then God says, but if you traipse on the blood of Jesus Christ, he will judge you. And when we go, Jesus Christ didn't come. His atonement doesn't mean anything. We can just live in sin. We can continue the same way. It doesn't have to affect the world. It doesn't mean anything. We're trampling it under underfoot, and we should just recognize that God says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hand of the living God. So as we think about it, we should be really careful that we look at the atonement the right way, because that's how we honor Jesus Christ the way that we should. Thanks for joining us. This has been The Conquering Truth, a project of Reformation Baptist Church. If you found this helpful, you can visit us online at theconqueringtruth.com and subscribe here or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for watching.